Our text of this afternoon is from Holy Scripture as the Church has summarized it in Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We find that on page 545 of the Book of Praise. Question and answer 80, 81, and 82. There we confess in Lord's Day 30. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us first that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches first that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ, unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and there is to be worshipped. Therefore the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian Church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. So far, the Catechism. This sermon was prepared by Reverend E. Campen, minister of the Canadian Reformed Church in Orangeville, Ontario. This is the final sermon in a series on the Lord's Supper from the Catechism, which Reverend Campen refers to as the Comfort Garden. I've chosen Lord's Day 30 because it follows Lord's Day 28 and 29, which Reverend Slomp preached on this past July. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we will take one final look at the table scene we encountered on our walk through the Comfort Garden. One might think that everything there is to be said about the Lord's Supper has been said by now. It appears not to be so. There is need to linger in this section a little longer. In the end, this should not surprise us. The table of the Lord has been the scene of much controversy. There have been implicit, re implicit references to this in the previous two Lord's Days of the Catechism. 
It is spelled out in very clear terms in this Lord's Day. We may not wish to bother ourselves reviewing the details of this controversy. Sometimes when you do that, all you do is bring up animosities that had finally died down. At the same time, it is good to review controversies of the past. For one thing, it will serve as a reminder as to why we are what we are as a Reformed Church. Even more, however, by reviewing controversies, we also have a review of the glory of the Gospel. This is not the only reason to linger a little longer. There is also the need to reflect on the question as, as to for whom the table is set. There is a connection here with the last question concerning baptism, as it asked who were to be the recipients of baptism. Now we have to ask ourselves, who are to be the participants in the Lord's Supper? That question will reinforce the glory of the gospel, and it will also bring out the seriousness of the gospel. So we linger a little longer. We might think of it as a parting look before we move on. And as we take a parting look, we see the glory as well as the seriousness of the gospel. Therefore, I proclaim to you our parting look at the Lord's Supper table impresses upon us the glory and seriousness of the gospel. We consider how we see first its glory and second its seriousness. An effective way to show how great and glorious something is involves using contrasts. For example, if you want to show a beautiful flower arrangement, you have to make sure the colors don't get washed out by having too many other colors around it. So it may be set against a dark background. In a way, this is what we see in question and answer 80, where the Lord's Supper is contrasted to Rome's version of that supper called the Mass. In the process, we see the glorious character of the Gospel. The way this question ended up in the Catechism and the way it is phrased reminds us of the great tension there was between Rome and the Reformers, a tension that really has never gone away. When the Catechism was first published in the beginning of 1563, this question and answer actually was not included. There was still hope that Rome would come around and there could be reconciliation. The picture changed completely later that year when the Council of Trent, which had been meeting off and on since 1545 in an effort to address the problem of the Reformation, wrapped up its sessions and showed itself unwilling to budge, maintaining its condemnation of all who held to Reformed teaching. This question and answer appeared in the Catechism for the first time in the third edition. The Papal Mass, then, is the dark background. It stands in sharp contrast to the Lord's Supper in the way, in effect, it has turned the Lord's table into the Lord's altar. Christ is not remembered, but he is re-sacrificed. This is no insignificant matter. It undercuts the believer's comfort, for it means that there cannot be forgiveness without renewed, constant sacrifice. The Catechism rightly points out that this is a denial of what Scripture teaches about the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is testified especially in the letter to the Hebrews. 
We read some portions of that letter. For example, we read in Hebrews 7, verse 27, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That text was on display before the service. We read in Hebrews 10, we read in Hebrews 10, verse 26, how he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Note those key phrases of once for all. The Lord's Supper points us to that once for all sacrifice. We don't have to ask Christ to offer himself anew, but we may ask him to apply his once for all sacrifice to cover our sins. There is no need to wait for the next offering. The offering has been made. There is our comfort. That is the glorious gospel that stands out brightly against the dark background of the Mass. There is a second aspect to consider, and that has to do with the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper and what that means for our worship. Again, we think of the dark background of the Mass. Christ is said to be physically present in the bread and the wine. This leads to the situation where people are told to worship the bread and the wine. Parts of creation are worshipped instead of the Creator. We have mentioned before that we believe in the real presence of Christ in the Supper. It is, however, a spiritual presence, not a physical one. Paul tells the Colossians to lift up our head on high where Christ is, at the right hand of the Father. Worship is thus truly a spiritual activity. When you worship bread and wine, which is what Rome requires of its members, you in effect commit idolatry, for you worship parts of creation rather than the Creator. The glory of the Gospel comes out even more when we consider the question as to who are to come to the table of the Lord. The question as to who are to come to the table of the Lord takes us into the area of qualifications. What qualifications does one have to meet to be able to take a seat? Considering the holiness of God and his hatred of sin, it would seem that obtaining a seat will be very difficult, if not impossible. It is actually very simple. Since the Lord's Supper testifies to Christ's death, the table is set for those who believe in Christ's death for the forgiveness of their sins. It really is as simple as that. While the Lord does call his followers to strive for a life of holiness, he does not make their personal holiness a condition for attendance. If anything, the table is not for those who have reached holiness, but for those striving after holiness. Stumbling and even outright failure does not disqualify a person as long as he lives clinging to Christ for forgiveness and valiantly fights against sin in his life. The way the Catechism expresses itself in the first part of this answer reminds us of the very structure of the Catechism as it speaks of our sins and misery, our deliverance, and our thankfulness. You could say that here we touch on the marks of the Christian. Know your sin, 
know your Savior, and desire to serve. We have to admit that the scripture references given under this answer are a little thin. When we let our minds scan scripture, we soon see that the catechism truly echoes the testimony in scripture. We think of what we read in Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We can add to this what we read in Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A third reference is Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals up the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The Lord sustains the humble. In Isaiah 42, verse 3, we read, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This all ties in with the way the Lord Jesus applied the words of Isaiah 61 about preaching good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted. We can also think of the way he chastised the self-righteous Pharisees and indicated that the tax collector who had prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, went home justified. Luke 18, 13, and 14. You see, the glory of the gospel is that it is not for those who think they are something, the wise and accomplished people of the world. It is not for those who think they have had an experience or who think they know exactly when they were born again. Rather, it is for the believers, for those who know they really are nothing before the face of God, and so they throw themselves upon his mercy in Jesus Christ. The Lord does not push the desperate away with words like, Go away, you dirty sinner. But he calls and says, Come, I will clean you up and strengthen you to go on. That's why we speak of gospel, good news for sinners. The supper is not for those who think they are righteous, but for those who seek their righteousness in Jesus Christ. You will recall how the form explains this beautifully as well. At the same time, as the Lord's Supper shows the glory of the gospel, it also shows the seriousness of the gospel. That is our second point. The seriousness comes out in the first place when we consider the danger involved for hypocrites. A hypocrite is an actor, a pretender. There always have been and will be pretenders among the believers. For whatever reason, perhaps not to upset the family too much, there will be those who go through the motions of faith. The nature of hypocrisy is that it goes undetected by others. People can put on a good act. It must be realized, however, that while it may be possible to fool others most, most if not all the time, it is impossible to fool the Lord. By his Spirit, he searches the hearts of men. Those who go through the motions make themselves liable to judgment. In this case, we can see that the reference to 1 Corinthians 11 is relevant. Paul warned about eating the bread and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner. 
His particular concern was the way the Corinthians did not translate love for the Lord into love for the brotherhood. These two are inseparable. At the same time, it is possible that people appear to love and serve the Lord and their neighbor outwardly, but it does not come from the heart. That is hypocrisy. There is nothing but unbelief, and it will be punished if there is no repentance. It is a holy supper, and that holiness must be honored by coming with a sincere faith. The seriousness of the gospel comes out in the second place when we consider the question of admitting those who show themselves to be unbelievers by their confession and lifestyle. This is different from hypocrisy, for that applied to secret sins. Here we are dealing with open sins. In this case, the Church has to show zero tolerance, because if the Church tolerates blatant disregard for the Lord and His law, she actually exposes herself to danger. She exposes herself to experiencing God's covenant wrath. Here is an important point to keep in mind. It is true that the Church is a community of sinners. We might even say that the Church is a giant, divine rehab project. The Lord is very patient with His people as He sanctifies them. He will not tolerate, however, blatant disregard and defying of the whole purpose of sending His Son. He sent His Son to redeem His people and renew them. He will not. He, he sent His Son to redeem his people, and where the Church continues to tolerate the openly wicked in her midst, she denies the very work of Jesus Christ. As we can read in Revelation, the Lord chastised various churches that tolerated all sorts of sins in her midst. His anger would be felt not just by the individuals, but by the whole congregation as he threatened to take the lampstand away. Note well then that the Lord will work with struggling sinners, but he will not put up with blatant sinning where the church stands idly by. That gives the impression the church is a community of wickedness and that God has fellowship with evil. This does not mean that the church pushes the blatant sinner away immediately, but it does mean the church must call them to repentance immediately. Failure to do so is dangerous not only for the sinner, but also for the Church. The Holy God will not be mocked. It is worthwhile to point out that the Catechism singles out the Lord's Supper and how that must be protected to avoid God's covenant wrath. This should not be taken as an indication that a Church can put up with all sorts of sinful conduct as long as it doesn't allow members to attend the Lord's Supper. What it comes down to is that a church will have a hard time physically keeping someone from attending the worship services unless that person is disruptive. It must, however, bar access to the Lord's table, to those who mock God by their unbelief and ungodly lifestyle. In the end, the congregation as temple of the Holy Spirit is holy territory, with rich blessings for those who believe, but with terrible consequences for those who defy the living God. So we come to the point of moving on from the section dealing with the Lord's table. As we move on, let us keep in mind 
both how this table impresses upon us the glory and the seriousness of the gospel. As for the seriousness, let those who live in hypocrisy hear the warning and repent, so that rather than curses, there may be blessings. For all who believe, do soak in that glorious message signed and sealed in the Lord's Supper, namely of how we have complete forgiveness of all our sins because of Christ's sacrifice. Amen.